for such a time as this. Um, if you remember, uh, this past two weeks, the first week we looked at um, the, uh, the kind of like the background of Esther, the, the text itself, um, some of the challenges, and then last week we looked at, um, we started reading, actually, <laughs> uh, in Esther chapter 1, uh, and we looked at, uh, we, we saw some of the uh, developments of characters, um, spe- specifically uh, King Hazars, and um, the, uh, the author's exposition of the setting, the kind of culture, and and background for the story of Esther. Uh, we talked about how uh, this is taking place uh, in, in the Persian Empire and, and the Persian Empire's culture. You know, what were they like? Uh, what kind of values did they have? At least seemingly from what we can see from uh, the introduction of King Ahasuerus and, and the feasts and things like that. Um, obviously, we looked at King Ahasuerus himself, uh, certain things about his actions as a ruler, you know, what that kind of uh, gives us an insight into uh, what kind of king he is, what kind of person he is, um, and all these things, uh, of course, matters because, uh, well, one, this Esther is, as we talked about, is a narrative, and narratives are usually driven by characters. Um, and these characters play a role in uh, the story of Esther. Now, King Ahasuerus is not the greatest ruler. Uh, I mean, he was powerful, of course. He was powerful, a lot of splendor, a lot of riches and glory, yes, but uh, I I think we can argue that he wasn't necessarily a a good person or a good ruler, Um, but even such a king uh, with a lot of his resources and things like that can play into... Um, good being done. And, and that's another theme that uh, I think we need to remember in Esther. This is motif of uh, characters that are imperfect, characters that are flawed, characters that are just sometimes downright sinful. Um, God still uses those people, uh, their lives, their tendencies, their characteristics, personalities. All these things play into God's will eventually. Um, of course, if you know the story of Ezra, Esther, uh, the moral of the story is, are you going to be a part of that plan? Are you going to be a part of God's will or not? Um, that is the question that is going to be asked in the story. But it's important for us to keep in mind that none of these characters are perfect, and we'll look into that more today as we look through chapter 2. Um, So, let's just go ahead and read uh, chapter 2. It's not a very... uh, I don't don't think it's any longer than uh, chapter 1. Maybe by one one verse. Um, Let's see. Can somebody please read from chapter 2, verse 1 through uh, verse 4, please? You can just jump right in. Okay, so 
we read of the next sort of development in the story, and it's, this is right after uh, King's dealing with uh, Queen Vashti. Uh, um, she, her refusal or disobedience to the king, refusal to to uh, come at his summon uh, of her, um, and obviously she's kind of disowned, right? She's uh, close to not being a queen anymore because right here we see that the king is on the search for a, a new new queen. Um, so one thing I noticed that was interesting to me, at least while reading this, uh, is how the author chose to word that first verse. After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he ha- or what had been decreed against her. It was almost as if he was kind of like, you know, drunken and not of himself uh, when all this transpired, when he sent out a, this massive decree Right against Queen Vashti and against or uh, about the the uh, the women of of, of Ur, all the provinces of his empire, he did all of that, and now his anger has kind of subsided, and now he remembers. I like I I think it's interesting to me, and I think it's purposeful. It's intentional how the author uses to word that or phrase that. This king. Right, we talked about how King Ahasuerus is not very a good, it's not a good ruler, um, and we get another insight into that. Uh, he did all of that in chapter one, while he was drunk, while he was uh, angry, right, kind of blind with uh, anger against Queen Vashti, and within all within that context, he was swayed easily by the uh, official Memican and his advice to send out this decree. Now, I don't think Memekin was trying to, you know, take advantage of the king or he was trying to, you know, do anything bad with that decree. I think he was genuinely giving him an advice on what to do with, in regards to that situation. But nevertheless, uh, we can see that the king was very easily persuaded by the words of Memekin in that moment of anger and in that moment of, uh, I guess, also he was probably drunk. Um, so, again, not a good ruler, not a good person, um, this king Ahasuerus. Uh, and and I, I find it interesting that the author specifically uses, remembers, as, as if all, this, all these things that he did happened while he didn't have full control of, you know, what he was doing. Um, after the anger has kind of gone away, he remembers Vashti and... and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Um, now, after, uh, the next thing is that King Ahasuerus sends people out to bring him beautiful young virgin uh, women. Um, so, of the things that uh, that people in absolute power in human history tend to struggle with, uh, alongside with you know, power struggle, or hunger for power, uh, greed for wealth, possessions, uh, materialistic things. Alongside those struggles, um, those tendencies of people who are in uh, big power, seats of power, is lust. And we can see that being played out here uh, as this uh, king sends out people to uh, bring him beautiful women. Uh, virgin 
uh, girls to uh, for him to choose as the new queen. Um, he doesn't look into their uh, character. He doesn't look into their personality. Whatever. That doesn't matter. As long as they are a virgin girl who is beautiful and is pleasing to look at, that's the only uh, category, uh, criteria that he provides for the people to go out and bring back to him. So, obviously, that's not very, you know, that's not very pleasant um, to talk about or even think about. But, uh, even with this abuse of power, and I think we can say this is an abuse of power, although this was a common practice for kings and, and people in, you know, uh, big seats of power uh, in antiquity in the ancient world, right? Uh, these people lived in a very different world than we do right now. Although this was, you know, a, a common practice, I can, I think we can agree that this, this is an example of an abuse of power. Now, even in this context of this king's abuse of his power, and, and I think we can also assume of his lustful motivations, good can come out, right? See, we see this theme playing out already, uh, in chapter two. Uh, of this story, um, these people are not perfect. They're imperfect. They're flawed. Uh, and if you're looking at someone like King Ahasuerus, they're downright not good people. But yet, within those things, within those events, God weaves his will and God weaves his uh, plans. And eventually, good comes out of it. So, um, out of this uh, context, um, good can come out eventually, and we know this if we, uh, because we have read the uh, the story of Esther. I hope you have read the book of Esther all the way through. Um, and of course, this is reminiscent of stories like uh, stories of uh, story of Joseph. Um, you know, he was abused by his brothers, um, sold off into slavery, and a lot of evil was done to him, and a lot of evil was done. Period. But yet, throughout all of that. Right, we were familiar with the story of Joseph. All of that, God weaved His will, um, and good resulted from it, nonetheless, through Joseph. Now, of course, Joseph had to be faithful, right, and stay faithful to God uh, during those trials, during those times of hardships. But through Joseph and his righteousness, good resulted, and you can find that in Genesis chapter 45. So. Again, we often think about biblical stories as um, as perfect people doing perfect things, you know. And when we think about biblical stories like that, it's hard for us to relate. It's hard for us to find wisdom in that because we're not perfect. We we obviously know that we're not perfect, right? And we're we can't always do perfect perfect things, good things perfectly, right? But when we realize and notice that in these stories that God works through imperfect people and he is able to do all the good that he needs us to do, even when we are flawed, gives us strength, uh, gives us motivation. Um, anything else? Uh, any comments, questions? Anything you noticed before we move on? Okay. Can someone read, please, from verse 5 through 11, please? Okay, so now we are introduced to our main characters of the story. Finally, right? Finally, 
enough of King Ahasuerus. <laughs> um, Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish. Now, Kish, who is he? We know this person. He is the father of Saul, right? And it points to the fact that Mordecai was, in fact, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Now, as to who the others are, Shimei sounds familiar, you know, because we've heard that name before in Old Testament, uh, other Old Testament texts. For example, Shimei, the guy who throws rocks at David and, and curses at him uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, but probably this is not, this is probably not that Shimei. Uh, because the events that transpired then was all the way back in like uh, 10th, 11th century BC, and we're talking about 5th century BC here in uh, in, in the Persian Empire. So um, th- these are probably not um, uh, any biblical figures that, that we know of uh, or that we read of uh, in places like Second Samuel. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the most important thing to get away from this or take away from this is that Mordecai is a descendant of the Benjamin tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this will be significant later on in the in the narrative, um, though more subtly, um, and we will notice that when, when we cross that bridge. Now, Jeconiah, uh, do we know who he is, uh, the king Jeconiah? He is known by a different name in Second uh, Kings. He is Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, who is the son of the righteous king Josiah. I read of Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim, his father, in Second Kings chapter 24. Right, and these are uh, Jehoiachin is, in fact, the king in which, like it is written here. Uh, in which, um, during his rule, uh, Jerusalem is besieged by Babylon and um, Judah is taken captive uh, into their Babylonian exile. So, um, and Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim were not good kings, uh, unlike their forefather, Josiah. Um, so those are some of the names uh, that we see here. Uh, but the most important thing is, uh, whenever you see genealogies like this, it's, it's just to prove that Mordecai is a Benjaminite and, and he is uh, a Jew, he is a Hebrew, right? So it's just uh, giving you an introduction as to who this person is, um, his lineage. Um, and what that really points to, most importantly, is uh, the fact that he is a Jew. And a lot of scholars, modern scholars, like to argue that Esther is about the Jewish identity as an ethnicity, which that is true. You know, Jewish identity is has certain uh, uh, aspects of ethnicity to it. But more importantly is their religious identity as a Jew. And what that means is that they served God. Right, that defined their identity. It wasn't necessarily that they were a Jew and a Jewish ethnicity, but it was that they were a Jew who served God. Right, that was their identity. So, uh, something to keep in mind throughout this uh, book, also. And we get.
quickly get a glimpse into uh, this character's um, character. <laughs> Mordecai, uh, he checks on Esther daily. Um, Neil uh, mentioned this uh, in his uh, sermon a week ago uh, on Father's Day. Um, Mordecai seemed to have been in some sort of position of power, uh, of official status, um, but his, uh, uh, his cousin, um, uh, Esther, who he has been taking care of her since uh, she was orphaned, um, now is in close vicinity to the king. Right, because she was chosen as one of the uh, young, beautiful virgins to have been brought to the king's palace. Uh, now she is in this court uh, of, of the king's harem, and Mordecai checks on Esther daily, and it gives us an insight into what kind of person this Mordecai is. Mordecai advises her to conceal her ethnicity or her uh, religious or kinship uh, her identity and also checks upon her every day. So there is wisdom, right? Mordecai is not foolish, kind of like a hazardous. He doesn't act uh, rashly. Um, he is calculating and he is not in a bad way. He is wise, right? So you can see that he also, he checks upon her every day, right? Every day without fail. And even though he was unable to see her, you know, physically and unable to interact with her uh, in close vicinity, he would go by the court of the harem and, and get news of how she was doing, right? Uh, really a fatherly love for Esther, even though Esther was not um, her uh, daughter or his daughter by blood or by birth. Um, so already we're seeing glimpses of the character of Mordecai. And honestly, it is a refreshing contrast to what we have seen thus far with King Ahasuerus, isn't it? And that's another thing that we need to notice with Esther, is that there's a lot of comparisons. And do you remember the uh, the handout that I uh, gave to you guys um, that has the outline of Esther and how it's kind of broken down? Uh one of the questions, the question on the side is, do you notice anything about the structure of Esther? Um, did anybody actually come up with something? Do you notice anything about the structure of Esther? It's almost like a mirror, right? The events are mirrored. Uh, somewhere around um, chapter, uh, the end of chapter... Let's see. In chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, where Esther reveals Haman's plot, is kind of like, is the turning point for the story of Esther. And then, after that, in the, uh, in the latter half of the story of Esther, we see events being mirrored, right, as they transpired in the beginning, the first half of Esther. So, Kings, the, the king's glory and splendor, splendor and all of that. At the very end of Esther, in chapter 10, we see uh, Mordecai, right, and his glory and his honor. But his glory and his honor was not due to the fact that he was rich and he was powerful, but because he was a good ruler who promoted peace and justice and cared for his people, right? So you see these kinds of mirroring happening a lot, comparisons, right? And 
rightfully so. This is a narrative. It is a story, right? So those things make for an interesting storytelling, right? Now, uh, so I think we can also say that there is a contrast uh, that's being done here. Now, the biggest contrast will be uh, with between Haman and Mordecai when Haman comes into the picture uh, in chapter 3. Um, but still, it is a refreshing change of pace from looking at uh, King Ahasuerus and his dealings and, and his style of ruling uh, to now we look at the main character, one of the main characters, Mordecai, who is righteous, who is loving, compassionate, cares for his people, cares for his daughter, Esther, and is wise. Um, and we'll see his character develop more and more throughout the story. So I hope that we will notice that as we go on. And Esther, right, the, the titular character uh, that we see, the, the protagonist of the story, and we also begin to see who this Esther is. And it, begin, it seems that she is humble and, and not corrupted by ambition or greed. Yet again, another comparison to the kind of the, the counterexample that we see in King Ahasuerus um, so far. And I think that's pur- purposeful why King Ahasuerus was introduced uh, in the beginning. It was, yes, it was to show the culture and show um, the legal practices of, of their day, of the Persian Empire during the reign of King Ahasuerus. But also it gives you, um, it kind of sets you up uh, to compare our righteous uh, protagonist against somebody like King Ahasuerus, who is only really for himself, for his own glory, uh, for his own pleasure, etc., etc. So again, Esther, we uh, we see that she is humble. She's not corrupted. She doesn't have like these uh, this kind of overly ambitious characteristic. Um, you would think that somebody who has been chosen and is known to be beautiful and people look at her favorably, that maybe she would be tempted to take advantage of that and, and to rise to power and to use that for her own good. But she doesn't do that. Right? She, is just, she just keeps on herself. And, and uh, when it's time for her to go to the king's presence, right? she only takes what is advised by her, uh, uh, the eunuch in charge of her, of Haggai. Um, and she obeys Mordecai. When Mordecai tells her uh, that you should probably do something, the X, Y, and Z, she just she doesn't you know uh, she doesn't counter that, or she doesn't you know say, oh well, I want to do this, or I, I want to try the. No, she obeys Mordecai. Um, though they were probably closer in age because they're cousins. Uh, Mordecai is older, obviously, and she is. Technically, her stepfather, right? And she listens and she obeys um, her father figure's uh, words. Um, so that's important uh, that we are seeing uh, the characteristics, uh, tendencies, and the behaviors of our main characters. So, and another inter- interesting thing about Esther is that even though she doesn't do a lot in terms of ambition, right? She just keeps herself, she's humble, she's obedient, and yet people still take notice of her. People still want to put her or elevate her 
despite her not wanting that necessarily for herself. And I think that's a lesson for us in humility. And it is a lesson that we have been seeing with Ezra, even before you know reading the actual text itself, this lesson of humility. Ezra embodies humility. And, and it is something that we must learn. When we are struggling for power, when we are struggling because of our greed and our wants and, and these things that we want to achieve for ourselves, our own plans, guess what? We can struggle all we want, but at the end of the day, God's will is going to win out, right? And that's, again, a, a lesson that we will, we will see later on in Esther. Um, so Esther embodies humility, and I think that is a very, very important characteristic of her. So, um, yes, uh, and then we move on to uh, verse 12 through... 18. I kind of skipped ahead. I got ahead of, of myself, so I'll just go ahead and read that. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever was she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who, was, who had charge of the women, advised. So you see, she, she didn't do anything fancy. She didn't do anything extravagant. She just took what was advised of her to take with her. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes. To the provinces he gave gifts with royal generosity. So although this isn't a spiritual blessing, remission of taxes and uh, royal generosity, uh, Gifts. I mean, these are blessings, right? These are uh, good things. And thanks to Esther and her character um, and, and her becoming the queen uh, to, to be with King Ahasuerus, thanks to that, other people are blessed. Again, this isn't, you know, it's not spiritual blessing, um, but nevertheless, people are benefiting from the fact that someone like Queen Esther is the queen. Um, and in verse 19, can somebody read verse 19 through the end of the chapter, please? Okay, so we have another significant development of the plot here where Mordecai discovers um, an assassination plot by the king's eunuchs, uh, Bigthan and Teresh. Um, who guarded the threshold, right? And uh, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, um, 
heard this, overheard this, and he reported it to Queen Esther. Already, right, already Esther's position to the vicinity of the king is helping Mordecai do good. It's helping with um, good and righteousness being done because Esther is in that position. Of course, Mordecai also is in, to some degree, is in a seat of power. He is an official, right? Um, But as we have seen before, the king is not very approachable. Um, and he does not like to be uh, just you know, sprung upon by uh, people. In fact, you can be killed later on. You will find out that you can be killed if you do that. Uh, and, but thanks to Esther being in the king's vicinity, um, we can see that Mordecai is able to get the message uh, to uh, where it needs to be. And um, the assassina- assassination plot is thwarted. Um, Now, this doesn't play an immediate significance in terms of plot just yet, but later on, uh, this will play out and um, play a role uh, uh, between Haman and Mordecai. Um, But uh, it's important that Mordecai did something righteous, did something good, and he was recognized. Now, he wasn't officially recognized just yet, right? It wasn't like the king praised him or anything like that uh, publicly. But the affair was investigated, found to be so, and the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, right? A book that will later be read to the king when he is uh, struggling to fall asleep. (laughs) Um, And and he will be read that Mordecai has done this thing. Um, So that is chapter 2 and i think the lesson that the main lesson at least that we can take away from this chapter specifically and the story uh, that we have seen so far in esther is this god puts people in places where he needs them to be uh, now does that mean that god like physically picks you up and you know throws you in somewhere like in arizona or something no like that's you know that doesn't happen like that but in his mysterious ways uh and his complex wisdom and, and will somehow some way people are placed where they need to be right now god doesn't what god doesn't do however is he doesn't make the choices for you Right? God didn't. God may have influenced uh, and, and uh, caused um, people to be at certain places, but He didn't make Mordecai choose righteousness and wisdom. He didn't make King Ahasuerus be the king that he is. He didn't force him to be a drunkard and, and easily influenced and, and an unwise ruler. He didn't make Esther. Right to be the person that she is. Those are all individual choices, right? Results of personal decisions and lifestyles that these people have led up to this point in their lives, and somehow, some way, God uses those as instruments, as tools, to make His will play out. Right? The story of Esther is uh, is about humility. And it's about submitting to God's will and, and 
learning to recognize that even though God's not, you know, He's not physically here in front of us telling us to do X, Y, and Z, although He doesn't do that, He works in the background. Even if we can't see Him, even if we can't hear Him or touch Him, even in those moments where we think there's no way any kind of good can come out of this, right? When King Ahasuerus is throwing his drunk parties and, and, and all this culture is around the Jews that are dispersed throughout Persia, and they're thinking, I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? Even in those moments, God is moving, God is working, God is acting, right? And we have to learn to detect that, and we have to learn to see that um, and, and, and see the wisdom that he operates with. And also, yes, yes, I think so. And and we don't know what the alternative looks like, yeah. right? Obviously, um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be where if Esther didn't step up or if Mordecai wasn't the good person that he is, the righteous person that he is, that someone else, you know, would have stepped up. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to look like that. It can even be God working through uh, evil decisions of Mordecai or Esther. I'm not saying that they did that, but hypothetically speaking, we just don't know, right? And that's that's the the beauty of Esther. And this is something that I try to mention or try to kind of drill into your heads. In the first week, uh, first Sunday, we looked at Esther. <laughs> Uh, before we dove into the text itself, we looked at some of the challenges and things like that. There are a lot of things we just don't know, right? Even with the, the text itself, right? There are some things that we just don't know. And we can try with all our mights, um, and, and we, can, we can struggle, and we can squirm around, and, and we can try to make things happen according to our own plans. But the real wisdom lies in the fact that God works throughout Everything. All, and God's will will eventually be done. Our, the question for us is not whether or not we believe Esther. It's not whether or not, you know, uh, am I going to do this or do that? The only question we should be asking, really, is am I going to submit to God's will? Am I going to be a part of his plan or am I going to go against it? We have to realize, though, that if we go against God, then we're not probably going to come out, you know, <laughs> uh, winning that fight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, no, you, you make a great point, and and that's the the reason why the argument of you know Esther is a godless book is really very very weak is because throughout the characters. Throughout their identities, for example, they're Jewish, right? They're Israelites, they're Hebrews. Uh, these things subtly point to the fact that God is very much a part of this story, right? Um, why did Mordecai have compassion for his orphaned cousin and bring her in as his own and brought her up to be this wonderful young woman that she is in this story. Why did he do that? Right? Why did Esther, why was she humble, obedient to her father figure, uh, kept to herself without any over, you know, overly extravagant ambition and selfishness? Why did, why did she do that? 
they were Jews. What does that mean? It just simply means that they are of people who are identified right, by their acknowledgement, their faith, their trust, and their worship of God. Right? God's character, God's name may not have been mentioned explicitly in the book of Esther, but his character right, is permeated throughout the people who represent him and the culture that represents him. What made or what makes uh, Mordecai and Esther great is not the fact that Mordecai is an official or government official. It's not the fact that Esther is beautiful to look at. It, it was none of those things. It was just the fact that, like you said, they just did their best in their everyday lives, making the choices that they, they did, they made, um, with God in mind. Um, like the slave girl, right, who... who caused uh, Naaman to to meet Elisha and, and be healed, right? You don't have to be a government official. You don't have to be um, a beauty pageant, right? You can just be an, a, a normal, everyday person, just making the decisions of everyday life. But as long as you do it with God in mind, as long as you do that with his plan and his will in mind, you're going to be good, right? We're going to be okay, right? And I think that's that's really the the gist of the story of Esther. Of course, you know we're only two chapters in, so we haven't even seen the meat of the story just yet. But um, already, already we're seeing these lessons, seeing these themes develop. So I hope that you're seeing that, and I hope that it benefits you and your spiritual walk in life. Thank you very much.